before we get started, why don't we have a word of prayer? Lord, help us. We just sang the song, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In the conclusion of that song, which is obviously a prayer, we sang, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, may all your days bring glory to your name. I pray, Lord, you will help us that those are not just empty words. Those are real from a changed heart in the power of the Holy Spirit words. I ask you that this message will bring glory to your name. And that our day, as we are here and as we leave, that it will bring glory to your name. And our lives will bring glory to your name. Help us. Because we so easily bring glory to other things. We ask you to open our eyes to see this morning as we consider the opening verses of Acts, that we will realize what dramatic and powerful call there is on our lives and what a dramatic and powerful Holy Spirit you have given to us to work in our lives. So help us and glorify yourself. In your name I pray. Amen. So let me read, if I may, Acts chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 this morning. Before I read it, I just want you to understand something. There are going to be places where we're going to go pretty slow through the text, but then there's other places where we're going to take big chunks of, of, uh, of verses and maybe even whole chapters at once. Uh, and the reason why is because, um, obviously, in the book of Acts, you have a story being told, many stories within the big story. It's full of stories because, obviously, as we talked about last week, Luke is referencing or describing the missionary journeys of Paul, the initial ministries of Peter, uh, some conflicts between Peter and Paul, conflicts between what Peter understands of the Old Testament and what God is trying to get him to understand the New Testament era. Uh, so there's a number of stories that are being presented, and in those stories, of course, we said last week, it's primarily a theological study, but we, we want to see them in light of the story. And so sometimes we're going to have to slow down. In Acts chapter 1 and 2, we're going to have to take it pretty slow. Because as we said last week, again, Acts 1 and 2 really established the trajectory of the whole book. And so we're going to take our time as we work our way through it. Let me read Acts chapter 1 verses 4 and 5 with you and then we'll spend some time in these five verses. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he, had, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. A couple of interesting words in this text that we're going to look at. There's some interesting theology being presented in this text that we're going to try to unpack. Plus, there's some history referenced in the book, in this section, I'm sorry, of this book, that is not mentioned what he's referring to, and we'll try to explain those as well. So, got a couple different directions we've got to go during the course of this study. First, we didn't mention it last week, but the recipient of this epistle, if you want to call it that, this uh, book that we call the Acts of the Apostles, 
which if you remember last week we said is probably more appropriately understood as the acts of the Holy Spirit working through the apostles, right? But the recipient of this letter is someone by the name of Theophilus. Let me just say real quickly, nothing is known about the guy. Luke also, the book of Luke, is written to this same person, Theophilus, or the same whoever, Theophilus. Um, there's a number of different discussions, and there have been since the beginning almost, who Theophilus was. At the end of the day, more than a millennia of discussion, they still don't know who he was. So I'm going to not leave it there. I'll give you a couple of the options that some people have thrown out. The three options that people have thrown out is, number one, that he was a patron, perhaps, that was supporting Luke. I'm not sure I buy that. Luke was, he was a doctor. It's not like he needed a patron supporting him, probably. Um, I'm not even, I couldn't even find information that the idea of a patron was a real common thing back in the first century. So I'm not sure I buy that argument, but I'll throw it out there. Um, there, some people have said he was a pastor of a church. That has probably more probability than the idea of a patron. Whether he's patron or whether he was whether or whether he was um, a pastor, he obviously loved the Lord. He was obviously a believer, um, and he was obviously someone who was deeply in love with Jesus Christ. Now that I think is pretty evident in both uh, the book, the Gospel of of Luke and the book of Acts, just from the tenor of the writings. Um, so it could be that he was a patron. It could be that he was a pastor. If he was a pastor, he was probably a relatively, um, let me change that, probably a pastor of a relatively large congregation. That's just a guess. But either way, it would, it would have, um, his letter, his gospel and this letter, this epistle, would have been spread by Theophilus outwards. Obviously, that's what happened. That's why we have it today. It's been recognized as gospel. I mean, not gospel, but, but inspired and revelation. So therefore, it has remained to this day. One other possibility for this person, supposed person, Theophilus, is that it may not be a person at all. The word Theophilus means lover of God. Literally, that's what it means. It could very well be that Theophilus isn't a person at all, but he's writing this letter towards a mythical person, if I may use that term, a non-existent person that is representative of lovers of God everywhere. Now, whether it is the patron, whether it is a pastor, or whether it is the third category, which I tend to lean towards the third category, the simple matter of fact is it is written to every lover of God everywhere. If you love God, you are Theophilus. I think it's very important that we get that. Even if there is a historical Theophilus, you and I, if we love God, are Theophilus. We are the recipients of this letter. This letter is for me. This letter or this history, whatever you call it, is for you. The Gospel of Luke was for, and is for me, and was and is for you. And it is for, if there was a literal Theophilus, it was for him as well. It would not be unheard of to write to a mythical person, if that makes sense to you. Uh, it's just a literary technique. So I just wanted to give that to you. The, the key on it, whether it is a person or not, is it is written to lovers of God.
Now, with that in mind, in the first book, which would be Luke, the Gospel of Luke, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. I want to stop on that statement because this introduces in a very, I would argue, a very powerful way. What he said right here, which we can just breeze over really easy, is something that has to be recognized if we're going to understand the book of Acts. In fact, I feel so strong about this that if you don't understand what was just said in what I read and the import of what I just read, you don't understand the book of Acts. And you never will understand the, ver the book of Acts. This statement, I'll read it again, is really, and there's one word that absolutely unlocks the entire book of Acts and the purpose for it. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. That's the statement we're looking at. Oh, let me add to it. Until the day when he was taken up. Anybody have any idea what the key word is there? No, not all. Began. The word began is an absolutely essential word. It's a crucial word. Let's step, take a step back. When you read the book of, of Matthew or Mark or Luke, we'll stick with Luke, okay, or John. We'll stick with Luke because it's the same author, same human author. When you read the gospel account, do you find yourself ever thinking, wow? Do you? hope so. <laughs> do, you ever, do you ever find yourself reading it and thinking, my goodness, what must it have been like to walk on the shore of Galilee with Jesus? You ever think that? Do you ever think, well, what must it have been like for Peter? <laughs> Here he is tending his nets, and all of a sudden this guy, this stranger, walks up to him and says, Come, follow me. I mean, is that stunning? Wouldn't you have loved to have been a... a, a a fly on a rock on the shore of Galilee and watch that interaction and watch Peter look at him and say, huh, good idea, <laughs> which doesn't make any sense. Wouldn't that have been incredible to watch? Wouldn't it? Wouldn't it have been incredible to be at Lazarus' tomb and see all the mourning and grieving and perhaps be grieving yourself and look over at Jesus, and Jesus is weeping too. And then he, crazy of crazy, says, roll the stone away. And they're like, what? What are you talking about? He stinks. Jesus says, roll the stone away. Wouldn't it have been something to be there? They roll the stone away, and Jesus walks up there, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. Would that have been incredible to be there? To see that? Wouldn't it? I mean, it would have been incredible, amazing. You know what Luke says? Here in the book of Acts? He says just the beginning. <laughs> he said, what has happened up to this point in time, O excellent Theophilus? It says that in Luke. Here it just says, O Theophilus. <clears throat> What you know that has happened so far, 
What he's referring to, of course, is the gospel accounts, the four gospel accounts. What you know that took place in those three and a half years of Jesus' earthly ministry, because it's been recorded, because you just received recently my, let, my, my gospel account that we call the book of Luke, what you need to understand, Luke, or Theophilus, more than anything else, is that was merely what? The beginning. That's all it was. That was just the beginning of what is yet to come. What I have yet to tell you, and the implication we talked about last week of the book of Acts, is it doesn't end at the end of chapter 28. Remember we said that last week? Right? And then we said? We said that it, the, the, it doesn't close. Does anybody remember what some of the reasons why I say it doesn't close at the end of Acts chapter 28 is? I gave you two really big reasons. There's actually three, but there's actually three. One is contained in chapter one. So what was the first one? It's contained in chapter one. I want you to put your thinking caps on. Have you remember? What? The ends of the earth. Is that what you said too? Yeah, the whole, the whole earth. By the end of Acts chapter 28, the whole world has not been reached yet, right? Hasn't been reached yet. No, it has not. So we know that, it, and that clear biblical account shows that it didn't conclude in Acts chapter 28. The other two, real quickly, are Paul isn't dead yet, the apostle ministers after Acts chapter 28, and John hasn't even gotten involved in his ministry really by the time Acts chapter 28 is over. It starts far after. John's ministry really explodes somewhere around probably 70 A.D., 40 years after Jesus goes back to, earth, to heaven. And John's ministry takes off. He kind of, not much happening. I'm sure it was, but it's not recorded. But the recorded ministry of John takes off somewhere that late. And goes all the way through, some people estimate, even as late as 105 AD or so, before he finally dies. He says here in the book of in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. This phrase, this statement is so important because what John, what Luke is in effect saying is all that you know that has happened so far is nothing compared to what is yet to come. And not just in the book of Acts, but until the end of the age. What you know has happened. There's been stunning things that have happened, right? Jesus is born of a virgin. He grows up. He begins to minister. He gathers disciples together with him. He performs all sorts of miracles, proving he is the Messiah. He teaches and presents all sorts of truth about his Messiahship and about the kingdom of God and about the coming wrath and about his sacrifice and about his resurrection and about his ascension, correct? I mean, that's a general summation. And what Luke is, in effect, saying is that's just the beginning. That's all it is. It's almost like Luke is saying, that's just the intro to this amazing story. It's just the intro. It's an important intro. It's essential because you can't have anything else without it. But his point is, that intro, 
the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry, culminating in his death and his resurrection and his ascension, those three and a half years are the intro and everything else that comes afterwards will flow out of this. The story continues and doesn't just continue, but it literally, from Luke's perspective, it literally explodes onto the scene in the book of Acts. Now, and we, I, I think we can understand that, can't we? If you really think through the Gospels, how effective was, how effective was Jesus' earthly ministry? Now, think about it. How effective was Jesus' earthly ministry? It wasn't very effective. I mean, early on, a lot of people followed him, right? Didn't they? Early on, a lot of people followed him. Now, we know from God's economy, it was very effective. But I'm talking about from our understanding. If you look at it, early on, everybody, a lot, tons of people were following him, right? Were they following him for the right reasons? No. They wanted more miracles and more signs. That's all they, were, all they cared about. And they thought that he was going to free them from Rome. And then when push came to shove, and he started backing off on the on the on all the cool miracles, first the Pharisees really started coming after him, right? And the Sadducees. But then we come to the triumphal entry, and everybody's going crazy, right? And just a couple days later, Jesus is teaching, and he, no miracles, no signs. He just begins to teach true kingdom theology. And they respond, how? They leave him. Who's left? Some women and 12 disciples. And then just a day or two later, one of the disciples are gone, right? Correct? And then later on that same day, or maybe the next day, probably the same day, what happens next with the rest of the disciples? They've gone too. And how many disciples are at the cross? One. Just one. And two women. And everybody else is what? At the cross. What's everybody else at the cross doing? Mocking and ridiculing. The same people who are crying out, Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Come save us now. They're mocking and ridiculing him. How effective was his ministry? Pretty horrific. By any human standards, it's a failure, isn't it? And then he resurrects. And his disciples are like confused. <laughs> and they finally seem to get it at some level. And we've come to the book of Acts. He ascends. Acts chapter 1. It, it, it kind of almost looks like a, a feudal ministry, doesn't it? It's like it didn't go anywhere. It didn't accomplish anything. When Jesus went back to heaven, the disciples, the 11 disciples, are still cowering in fear, aren't they? It's a pretty effective ministry. Didn't have much of a dent in this world, did it? Not much. It's just the beginning. But when it comes to the book of Acts, something happens, doesn't it? We'll see it in Acts chapter 2. And then it'll grow from there, won't it? 
and it'll just explode into history. And you can track it up to the present day. Can't you? When Luke says here, he says, what I talked about in my previous ministry, up to or my previous book, until Jesus went to heaven, that's merely the beginning. Now, what's the import of that? Here's the import. You and I are not living in the beginning. We are living in the story, the main part of the story. We are. That was the beginning. This story we are in is flowing from that and exploding from that. And it's based upon Christ's life and his death, his virgin birth, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. But Luke says, in effect, when he says this, what he's saying is, Theophilus, buckle your seatbelt. Because the book of Acts is going to explain, it's going to show how that was the beginning and this is like a much more full story flowing out of that beginning. Not a separate story, much bigger story flowing out of the essential beginning. And the bigger story that's flowing out is the effect of it. It's the effect of the beginning. Not separate from, it's the effect of it. It's the inevitable effect of it. Now, why does Luke talk about it this way? Well, there's a really important reason why he does. Because for Luke, in this inspired text, the only thing that is coherent to Luke is if the beginning is true, if the beginning is real, if the beginning part of the story is accurate, and for Luke it is, and for us it is as well. Because it really is true. Then the rest of the story, to quote Paul Harvey, the rest of the story must equally be true. If the promised work of Christ, which is part of the beginning, actually had its effect, then the rest of the story must also equally be true. And when we think about the rest of the story, we must think about the rest of the story, which you find in the book of Acts, and then we'll see it later in some of Paul's later writings in John, and then flowing out throughout church history to the present day. We have to see that the rest of it, starting in Acts chapter 1, is like, if you could picture it, like a cone. The smallest part of the cone is the beginning. That does not mean by smallest that it's the least important. Actually, the smallest part of that cone is the most important. Because if Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, virgin birth, and all that did not happen, there would be no cone. There would be no cone. That's the reason why this cone that we're talking about exists. It starts with this little beginning. I say little, not, again, in significance. Significance-wise, it's humongous. It's everything. But ultimately, even the disciples didn't get what was going on until Acts chapter 2, correct? They really didn't. Very little. The point of the cone. And then for Luke, 
if that point of the cone is true, the beginning, as he talks about here, then the rest must also be true. What's the rest? All the rest of the history as Christianity begins to expand and expand and expand as true Christians are caught up with the beginning. You understand what I'm saying when I say the beginning? As true Christians, true redeemed people, true, saved, rescued, bought, adopted people, made alive people, get caught up in the beginning. And the point, the argument of Acts is that they do. The argument of every book of the New Testament is they do get caught up. It's not they may. And we'll see that next week. They do. And when they do, because they're being made alive, Ephesians chapter 2, they become part of the cone that is coming from what Christ began. That's why, that's why the scriptures tell us that we make up for what is lacking in the sacrifice of Christ. That's what he's talking about. See, true believers live out the truth by the, to quote from next, next week's passage, the power of the Holy Spirit. We find ourselves living out that and we become part of that growing cone of glory to God and glory to Christ. So it's really important because it's really easy for us to read these stories, read this book, and read the Gospels and not see ourselves there. <laughs> and when you do that, you're denying the truth. You are like the book of Acts, if you're a true believer, you're like the book of Acts, sequel 8,000. Do you realize that? You are. No, we're not apostles. But we are redeemed people who the Holy Spirit is working in and through if we're really redeemed. Now, in the first generation, it primarily, not completely, but primarily focused on the apostles. So in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. And from here on out, we're going to talk not about beginnings. We're going to talk about the ramification, the effects. In fact, the sure effects of the beginning. Which should cause us, if I may just pause for a second before we move off this first phrase, it should cause us to pause and ask ourselves a really important question. You know, I'm a person who likes to ask questions. I ask questions of myself all the time. It should pause and cause us to ask questions. And the question that probably we ought to ask is, as I read Acts chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through to the end of Acts chapter 28, do I see the things I see in the book of Acts? Now, not everything. There's things we're going to say that's, that's early church things, that is early establishment things. We'll talk about those things when we get there. But... In general, do I see the Spirit at work in me like this? Very important. I would submit to you that Christianity in general has really sold this idea down the river. We don't expect people to become mature in Christ anymore. We don't expect people, you've heard me say this before, we don't expect people who claim to be believers to become elder-esque type of people, mature-wise, maturity-wise. We don't expect that. 
We don't even expect, in most churches, we don't even expect people to tell their neighbors about Jesus anymore. Do you realize that? Most conservative churches are more about bring people to church so the professional can tell them about Jesus. That's ludicrous. That's not in the Bible. That's not even found in the Scriptures. Anywhere. It's not even alluded to. Why, do we, why, why does the average church do that? You know why? Here's why. It's really simple. Because most people who claim to be Christians don't want to tell their neighbor about Jesus. It's really safe to ask, hey, if you're not doing anything next Sunday, why don't you come to church with me? That's really safe. Even though you know in the back of your mind if they actually do come and actually do listen, and if he actually does talk about the gospel, I'm probably going to end up with questions that I can't answer because I really don't know any of that either. Which begs the question, right? Why don't I know anything that I can talk to people about? My point is, we don't today actually believe that we're part of God's story. Ultimately, we don't believe that anymore. And it's evidence, I think, too often by the way people who claim to be believers actually live. We actually just kind of think that there was all these great things that happened back then. And now we're just waiting for the thing that's yet to come. But that's not true. That just, that, that's just the beginning. It's an amazing beginning. That's just the beginning. But what God does from there on outward is dramatic. It's stunning. It's mind-boggling. If you don't pick it up in the book of Acts, you're not reading. It's crazy. If you don't pick that up in the, in the epistles, it's mind-boggling what the Spirit does. Every single page. As people are changed and they go out for God. It's just the beginning. And we're living in the, in the central part of the story. The results of what Christ has accomplished in the beginning. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, referring to his ascension back to glory. After he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. We're going to stop on two there. Real quickly, he talks here about the commands. He says, Jesus began it to do and teach, which, oh, by the way, going back to one, what are the doing and teaching he's talking about? Well, the doing, of course, is his miracles, his, his um, um, teachings, uh, all of his, uh, all the things, he, all the ways he functioned throughout his ministry. Um, and what did he primarily teach about? He primarily taught about kingdom of God, sin, need for a redeemer, and he will be that redeemer. Is that what he taught? That's a grand summation. So all, that's the beginning of what he did and taught until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles with uh, whom he had chosen. Everything I read about that, this statement about his commands that he'd given to the apostles, everything I've read have all linked to four different verses 
in the four Gospels. We're going to look at them, but I think it's bigger than those. They're important ones, but I think it's bigger. So the four commands that he links to, they're all the same command in four different Gospels, and I'll give them to you real quick. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. We're going to look at each one of them, these commands. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Mark 16, verse 15. Luke 24, you'd expect to find it in Luke, since it's his previous book, previous letter. Luke 24, verse 47, and John 20, 21. We're going to conclude on John 20, 21 on this section before we jump into the, into the other, uh, just a, uh, a broad brush view of the other commands he gave. So let's look at these four verses real quickly. Matthew 28, we should know that. We reference it regularly. Matthew 28. Verses 19 and 20. And in reality, we should start with verse 18. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time in any of these four verses or section of verses. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, or probably more accurately, as you are going, make disciples, there's the command, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always. How long? Through to the end of the cone. Right? Do you get that? Through to the end of the cone, which if we go backwards, then we say, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me, and are given to me, and the implication of verse 18 is, And it remains in me and with me. Does it make sense so far? It remains. That's the idea. The only way for that authority to go from him is if he lets it go and he doesn't. It cannot be wrestled from him. Verse 19, as you are going, literally is the idea, as you're living life. I want to make sure we get that. As you're living, or to put it a different way, as you're living in the cone of the rest of the story. Command. Make disciples of all nations. That was the command he gave the disciples. And later, in the book of Acts, they call them apostles. As we already talked about last week, that command echoes down. We talked about when we looked at Matthew 28 as well. It echoes down through the whole cone to today and beyond. Make disciples. And then he goes on and tells them how. And the uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So there's instruction going on. Baptizing has been debated on whether it's referring to water baptism or being saved. I tend to lean to it being saved in this passage. In fact, I'd lean pretty heavily that direction. Andrew and I have talked about this quite at length. I don't think this passage is necessarily talking about water baptism. Baptizing them or presenting Christ to them for them to be saved, being the means of bringing the gospel to them, and teaching them as a result of being saved people. Teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. Do you get the sense in Matthew 28 that the, that the statement here is pretty active? 
where you get the sense it's passive. It's pretty active, isn't it? It's an ongoing. Wherever you are, you get the picture. Wherever you are, as you are going, by the way, where in the Old Testament, just we're going to go off in just a second, but where in the Old Testament do you get an as-you-are-going concept? Because it's stated in the Old Testament as well, not in so many words. Deuteronomy 6. And that he says about fathers and their children, whether you are in your house or out in the way, whether you're lying down or whether you're getting up, what does it sound like? As you're going. As you're living life, what should you do? Teach your children what? To love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their might. Now he's talking about speaking to covenantal people there, correct? And what should what is he telling them to do? Teaching them to observe or to follow what? All I've commanded you. That's Old Testament. Now for this, in the New Testament, he's talking about to lost people, non-covenanted people. So we've got to do what first? Tell them about Jesus first. Tell them about redemption first. And then what? Teaching them to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Correct? Does that make sense? And oh, by the way, Jesus says, I'll be with you the whole way. And the implication of being with you is found very clearly laid out in Acts. It's, it's explained and it is demonstrated. So it's really important we get that. Now, jump over to Mark real quick. Mark chapter 16. The very last chapter of Mark. Verse 15. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. There it is. There's the command. Go and proclaim. Sound active or sound passive? Sounds pretty active, doesn't it? Luke 24, 47. Luke 24, 47. We'll start in verse 46. And he said, and said to them, thus, thus it is written, that Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed, it's another com- form of command, should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Which has a direct connection in Luke back to Luke or Acts chapter one. You shall be my witnesses where? Jerusalem, beginning in Jerusalem. And Judea and Samaria and where? To the ends of the earth. Sounds like this, doesn't it? There's a command. John chapter twenty, verse twenty one. John, speaking to his disciples, says this, Jesus said unto them, Peace be with you. Why did he say that? Because they were in absolute turmoil. They were, they were I mean, what a, what a time frame to live, right? Crazy time to live. Peace be with you. What does he say next? As the Father has what? Sent me what? 
so I am sending you. That's a, that's a much more radical statement than you think. He is not merely saying, the Father sent me, now I send you. That's not what he's saying there, although that's what we always think he is saying. My Father sent me to you, now I send you outwards to the rest of the world. That's what we think it says, right? It doesn't. It says something a whole lot more important than that, something more powerful than that, more radical than that, more mind-boggling than that, more life-altering than that. He said, listen to it again, as the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. What? What? What do you say? What's the key word there? As. And even so, I am sending you. Those two phrases, one is a word, the other one is two words, they link together and, and, and it challenges the reader, if you're thinking at all, to ask, how did the Father send Jesus? Right? And for what purpose did the Father send Jesus? Now, there's some things we can't fulfill that he did, right? Like, I can't be in atonement for your sin. That's kind of left to God. I cannot be the perfect sacrificial lamb. Why not? How do you know? Because <laughs> I'm a sinner. That's a pretty bold statement there, Ken. Because I'm a sinner. Jesus wasn't. But... As the Father has sent me is talking about bringing, in a very real way, bringing what? Bringing redemption to the world. Bringing light to a dark and lost world, is it not? As the Father sent me also does... Let me ask you a question. Did the Father send Jesus impotently? Or did he send him with absolute potence? He sent with absolute potence, didn't he? Did he send Jesus shyly and embarrassingly, and Jesus lived his life kind of shyly and embarrassingly and kind of making excuses and, you know, flying under the radar screen? Did he? Well, no. Was Jesus meek? Well, we talk about Jesus being meek, but was he characteristically meek or was he characteristically a lion? He was a lion. Or one of my favorite terms that, that Ken said one time that I've always latched on to, if you're going to be a bear, be a grizzly. I love that term. That's an awesome term. Jesus came as a lion. Did he speak boldly? Did he speak apologetically or not? He didn't, did he? Did he get Authoritative or did he not? Did he speak authoritatively or did he not? Was he a thus if the Lord kind of guy or was he a, well, you know, I think, but, eh, but I'm not really sure. It's pretty bold, wasn't he? And was he, was he empowered by the Holy Spirit or was he not? It's really clear. You read the Gospels. He was very empowered by the Holy Spirit. In fact, he's, it's mentioned repeatedly that he was full of the Holy Spirit and responding by the Holy Spirit and living by the Holy Spirit. It's very clear in the Scriptures. Well, in Acts, we're going to discover something. Something radical happens to the disciples when they receive the Holy Spirit, does it not? 
And we haven't gotten there yet, but we kind of know it, don't we? Something radical happens. Why does that radical thing happen? You know why? John 20, 21. As the Father sent me, so send I you. Now, a lot of people use this passage. John 20, 21 is a manipulative passage to try to get people to join missions or to get out and they try to guilt people into evangelism. But that's not the point. The point of the text is that God, Jesus, went out with the power of the Godhead. He did. And he says, that's how I was sent. And I'm, gonna send, I'm sending you that same way with the power of the Godhead. Focused on the Holy Spirit, of course. And that's what Acts is all about, the evidence of that taking place. And when we hear that, it should challenge us. Did I get a different sending than the disciples did? I don't think so. Or did I get a different sending than Paul did? I don't, I don't think so. I don't see it in the Scriptures. Did I get a different sending than Barnabas? Or Titus? Or Timothy? What? Or Stephen? Did I get a different sending than, than John? Or Peter? Did I get, did you get a different sending than them? The answer, if we read the book of Acts, has to be no! Resoundingly, no! The same Spirit that was working in Jesus in the beginning, He is promised to be working in His true children from the beginning of the cone to the end of the age. That's what he promised. You see, this is not some sort of manipulative command. This is what, what Jesus is talking about through Luke here is something dramatic is going to change. And inevitably, in his children's lives, it's going to change. And for people who were meek before, they're going to be lions. If they were pandas before, they're going to be grizzlies. That's what's going to happen. And when you read the book of Acts, you've got to recognize it. That's what happened, isn't it? Isn't it? Acts chapter 2. Was Peter, was, to use the term... Was he a panda? Or was he a grizzly? Which was he? He's a grizzly. Was Stephen? Was he a panda? Or was he a grizzly? Now, Peter struggled for a little while with a little bit of panda stuff, doesn't, didn't he? But when he did, what happened? The lion came. And what do you, how do you respond? He, he, he responded repentantly. And he became what he was supposed to be. And it happened several times. Didn't it? Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 15. When Paul met Jesus, he became a lion. Didn't he? I'm going back and forth between the lion and the grizzly. But you get the point. 
He wasn't a little kitty cat. He was a lion. Silas too, right? Peter. We already talked about him. John. Pretty lion-esque. And by the way, ladies, since you, in case you missed it, there are a number of women who are referenced as well in the book of Acts, as well as in Paul's writings. And you know what he references? He references a bunch of lionesses. He doesn't reference little kitty cats. It's intriguing. What's the point? <laughs> well, these final commands that you've seen four different ways, it's one command, four different ways, are stunning, aren't they? But they're connected with something. The commands don't exist merely as commands. They're connected to the indicatives. And the indicative, for example, in Matthew 28 is two-sided. The one indicative is all authority, all power has been given to me. The other indicative is, well, I will be with you always to the end of the age. Those are the two indicatives. The indicatives are also connected to, like we saw in John 20, 21. As, I sent you, as the Father sent me, so I sent, so sent I you. Connects directly to the book of Acts when Jesus, after he finishes his commands here that we see in verse 2, the immediate thing that comes after is the comments about the Holy Spirit. This is not about do better. It's about the Holy Spirit. Oh, by the way, I said there were other commands. So I want to talk about them real briefly. They fall into two categories in the book of Luke. Two categories. I'm not going to give them all to you, but if you read the book of Luke on your own, you'll find that there are commands given to the masses that are following him, and they serve one purpose, and that purpose is basically showing they need a redeemer. But then he gives commands to the apostles, to the disciples. And the commands to the disciples break down into two categories, negative commands and positive commands. Those are the two. The negative commands are warnings to them. Warnings about watch out for the blank of the Pharisees, for example. What is it? The leaven of the Pharisees. Watch out for the, the stuff that is so easily gets inside of us. It sounds so good that various authorities or people we look up to will, will say that sound like they make sense. Watch out for it because it will corrupt you, is what Jesus is saying. And there's a variety of those. And then there's positive commands. Positive commands of knowing Jesus and fellowshipping with Jesus and learning and drinking and eating. Positive commands, as well as the commands we saw about proclaiming. But all those commands, the warnings, as well as the positive commands, the negatives and positive commands, are all based upon a relationship, an intimacy with our, with their Redeemer. How can they possibly watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees if they don't have the one who is absolutely unleavened? Does that make sense? How can they understand what the leaven is unless they know the one who doesn't have any leaven? Right? For example... How can they possibly pursue the positive commands if they don't know the ones being commanded about? Like, how do I even know what well to drink from if I don't know the one who is the well, or the spring, I mean? Right? Does that make sense? 
So all these positive negative commands given to the disciples are dependent upon them knowing the Redeemer who is being referenced. And from there he goes on. I'll start in verse 1 again. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So this is the first reference of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, by the way. You see it there in verse 2. The first reference, and, and he's saying, this is how the Holy Spirit worked in who? Jesus, right? Verse 2. He gave the commands through the Holy Spirit. That's really important in the book of Acts. I told you this is really foundational. Because in a moment, he's going to say, this same Holy Spirit is going to, what? Come on you, right? And so, it's, it, it's expected that the disciples will immediately, in the beginning of Acts, say, well, before, they, obviously, Acts didn't exist. But when we read, we expect that this is what the Spirit did in Jesus, I just read Luke, right? Just read the Gospel of Luke. This is what, if I'm Theophilus, I just read the Gospel of Luke. This is how the Holy Spirit worked in Jesus. I come to verse 2, and it says, until I've given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, that is, the Holy Spirit was working in him as he was being a lion toward the disciples, giving them commands. And then, verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and, uh, uh, and speaking about the kingdom of God. I want to stop on that briefly. I know we're running a little long. But I want to speak on a brief, stop on it briefly. Keep them in the back of your mind the Holy Spirit thing that we saw in verse 2. So he presents himself alive. Jesus is obviously, or Luke is obviously looking backwards here. He says he presented himself alive to them. Who's the them? The disciples, and now they're called apostles. Um, he presented himself alive to them over 40 days, and he taught them. We'll get to that in a second. After his suffering, that is referring to the Passion Week, his death and resurrection, his arrest, his death, his resurrection, and all the abuse that took place, by many proofs. It's really interesting. If I may, This is somewhat of an aside, but an important aside. This is the only place in all the scriptures that this word is used. Proofs. It's the only place it's used. It's used nowhere else. I find that very intriguing. Now, this is going to be my presuppositionalism pouring out here um, when it comes to apologetics. But it's interesting. He presented, it's interesting, it says he presented many proofs. What were the, what were the proofs? He appeared to them, right? In many different ways. He appeared to them and he taught them something. Correct? So the proofs were his appearing and ministering to them. It is interesting. We use the word proofs today so often in Christianity. It had nothing to do with his, these post-resurrection things. It's, I want to prove to you God exists by using philosophy or science or things like that. That's not what Jesus does. What does he do? He walks among them. That's the proof. And it was good enough. I want to challenge you. This is an aside, a freebie, but proofs are what God calls our proofs, not what man calls proofs. Does that make sense? You know what the proof today is? 
You know the proofs are today? Because we don't see Jesus, right? Physically? They saw him physically, right? When were they captivated by everything? So now we're no longer in the asides. We're back to the text. When were they captivated by it all? What's that? When they received the Holy Spirit, that's when they were captivated by it all. That's when it all came together because they had the power of the Holy Spirit, correct? Before then, it wasn't all coming together, was it? Ever. They're little snapshots, but it wasn't. Now today, you and I never see Jesus resurrected physically, do we? You better say no. If you say, yeah, we got problems, we need to talk. We don't see him physically resurrected. But we, if the Spirit moves in us and makes us alive, Ephesians chapter 2, we, what? Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting. The disciples had the proofs, right? How effective was that? It wasn't. Yeah, talk to Thomas. Yeah, it wasn't very effective, was it? But something changed when? When the Spirit came. When the Spirit came with power. Could I submit to you that I would argue the proof of the resurrection, the proof that Jesus Christ is God, only comes one way. Only one way. You know what it is? The Holy Spirit moving in someone's life. Period. And takes them from death to life. You know what we do today? We talk about the on, 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 ontological arguments for God and the cosmological arguments for God and, and, and the blah, 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 blah. What's that? But Peter said we have these words more sure based upon the Spirit at work in us. Because if you read Second Peter 1, it starts with that. It concludes with the words. What I'm trying to say is that the thing we bank on for ourselves is the Spirit at work in us according to the Scriptures. The thing we bank on in the proclamation of the truth, the Gospel, is what? Same thing. The Spirit at work in people. And when He moves, you know what's going to happen? They're going to, what's going to happen is the same thing we, we're going to see in Acts chapter 2. You know what that is? Peter gets up and he's a grizzly. And as he's a grizzly, what happens? The people seemingly are interrupting him and screaming out what? What, what, what must he do to be saved? That's spirit work. That's what that is. That's proof. And then you see people join the cone. They're functioning with the cone. You know what that is? That's proof that Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead and conquered sin and Satan and death. It's proof that the Spirit is at work in their lives, transforming them. That's proof. That's what he's getting at here. When he says, speaking the kingdom of God, we don't have time to get into that right now. What does he do? For 40 days, he's teaching them about the kingdom of God. Can I submit something to you? This is the only thing I want to say at this point. 
we are in the kingdom of God. There's too much of Christianity that teaches that the kingdom of God comes in the millennium. We are in the kingdom of God. He is on the throne. That is very much kingly terminologies, kingdom terminologies. He is on the throne. The enemy is defeated. The kingdom is functioning. Is it in its fullest fruition? No. When Christ returns, it will be in its fullest fruition. But today, He's on His throne. He is ruling. He has all authority. He has all power. The kingdom is now. And we are kingdom dwellers. It's important we get that. And all the ramifications. And then verse 4, And while he was staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. What a promise. Because he just said, he just talked to the Holy Spirit, verse 2. That, and the implication of that is that you look at Jesus' life and you see what Holy Spirit living looks like. And he just said, after that, to the disciples, you stay in Jerusalem right now. Why? Because you haven't what? Been baptized with the Spirit yet. You stay here and wait. And why is that? Because for Jesus, what he wants is he wants this strong contrast. Pre-Spirit, post-Spirit. Because the strong contrast is, is clear. It's necessary. It has to be there. This is what I was like before the Spirit came. This is what I'm like after the Spirit came. And we know in the grand sweep of the book of Acts, it becomes very clear that apart from a few exceptions, the Spirit comes when? At salvation. At regeneration. When I go from dead to alive, the Spirit comes. And when He comes... Everything changes. That's the story of the book of Acts. When the Spirit comes, everything changes. And he says, you know, John baptized with water, but when you but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, or a better way to another way to understand that is you will be immersed in the Holy Spirit, or you will be united with the Holy Spirit. Both terms are correct correct to be understood. By the way, this is one of my, one of my passages where, even though it's not talking about water baptism, it, it kind of has water baptism as a side, but it connects the water baptism to the spirit baptism. And it's one of my problems with, with infant baptism, with a sprinkling. The sprinkling doesn't make any sense to me here. You're not going to be sprinkled by the Holy Spirit. You're going to be immersed. You're going to be united with drenched with the Spirit. Soon you will be absolutely immersed and united with the Spirit. And the implication is it will absolutely change you. Absolutely change you. And then the evidence from here on is in the book of Acts is this, is the evidence of what happens when someone is united with, immersed in, 
the Holy Spirit. Everything changes. And if you've ever read the book of Acts, you know it's the case. You know it is. Every step of the way, there's no exception. <laughs> there's no exception. The transformation is dramatic. And it's troubling. <laughs> because it's, in reality, the immersion into the Holy Spirit, the, the, the uniting with the Holy Spirit, is a moving from a a different kingdom into the kingdom of God that he spent 40 years talking about. Or 40 days talking about, I mean. That's what it is. And Luke wants Theophilus, or maybe better put, potential Theophiluses. Theophili? I don't know. He wants us all to think about this introduction and ask ourselves, Am I baptized in the Spirit? Am I immersed in the Spirit? Am I united with the Spirit? And the Spirit with me? Am I a lion as a result? Again, no guilt. No guilt. Guys, ladies, go out and be a lion. That's not the point. Because when, when the Spirit comes, the evidence is pretty clear, right? The proof is really clear. In Acts, what happens? Someone who was timid as a kitten is now a lion. Or better put, timid as a lamb, maybe. I don't know. The only time Jesus was a lamb was at the crucifixion. But when the Spirit comes, people are lions. People are grizzlies. It's challenging. And I think... Luke wants the reader to be challenged and to wrestle with, am I really a Theophilus? A lover of God? Does my life, does my passions, my, my heart, is it a kingdom of God? Or isn't it? Is it enthral being enthralled with the one who has redeemed me, the one who started the cone? <laughs> And am I all enthralled with the ramifications of the cone? Because I'm enthralled with the starter of the cone. Or not. As we go from here, that's the challenge. Because the promise of God is this will happen. The promise of God is, is that the Spirit does radical things. He puts people in a different kingdom. And certainly we see the disciples functioning in a different kingdom from here on out. Once we get into Acts chapter 2. And other non-apostles functioning in a different kingdom by the power of the Spirit. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. It is the Spirit's work. Friends, could I just encourage you? Maybe our prayers ought to be centered on that. Maybe our prayers ought to be centered on crying out to God. I hope, if that's not you, with regard to the kingdom of God and the God of the kingdom, I hope that your hearts are troubled today. I hope so. I hope our hearts are troubled 
And we find ourselves crying out to God. God, I need that, that work of the Spirit in my life. Because I know left to myself, left to my own devices, I will never be that lion. I will never be that grizzly. Left to myself, I will functionally live outside the cone. And I've lived outside that cone too long. I hope if you're troubled, we will cry out. And if we find ourselves living in the cone, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? If we find ourselves living in the cone, you know what? We need to be crying out. God, protect me so that today I'll be in the cone. Help me by your Spirit to hear the warning to watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. And I know the only way I will is by having my eyes fixed on you. So fix my eyes on you. Open the eyes of my heart so that I will know you and therefore the leaven will show itself so clear. Help me today, like I did yesterday, to drink deeply at the spring of living water. Help me today again to crave the living water. Because I am living in a, a thirsty land where there is no water. Help me to see that. And help me to know and enjoy the food that the disciples knew nothing about. Help me to want that and crave that more than anything else. God, let it be real in me. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. This body they may kill, your truth abide us still, your kingdom is forever. God, may it be so in me. Wow, what a prayer. And can I encourage you with something? God's promised that to his believers. In light of our talk about prayer, God's promised that. His word won't return void. His spirit will never be impotent in his true children. So the call of the text is not to be lions. <laughs> you know the call, if we could say anything at all? The call in this text, it would be this. Wait for the spirit. But I believe that what he said to the disciples is true for us as well. Oh, he'll come in not many days. <laughs> he'll come. If you're actively waiting, searching, praying, because they were praying, weren't they? But if you know the text, you know they were up in the upper room doing what? Praying. They were afraid, but they were praying. I suspect they weren't praying for Aunt Melba's big toe. They were praying for the Spirit. Because it had been promised. And the Spirit's been promised to us as well. If we're believers. You pray. He'll come. And we'll be transformed. And we'll be lions. And people hate us. If I could just give that out there. People hate us. They'll reject us. They'll despise us. They'll mock us. They'll ridicule us. And maybe even kill us. And that's okay. If we have the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, help us. 
Because too often, if we read the book of Acts, we have to say there's some strange disconnect going on. Really, a gross disconnect. We know by truth that your, the your spirit has not changed. You know, too often, if we were going to be truthful, we have to acknowledge that what we see in the book of Acts and the rest of the epistles, that what the Spirit did then, he's not doing now in our lives. And so this morning we ask that your Spirit will do that. That we will be sent as Jesus was sent. With Holy Spirit power. And the result will be an amazing, supernatural, bold love for you. No matter what. So help us. In your name I pray. Amen.